you know, if you're from Kansas, whether you uh, want to admit it or not, the story of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz is well known. You know, in fact, if you travel to other parts of the country, sometimes that's all they know about Kansas. It's a fictional story. Uh, But you know the story about Dorothy. She gets taken up by one of these spring tornadoes, and she's dropped in a distant land. Gail knows all about it. He's been there. Uh, But she's got to find a way home. You remember? And she's told to follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. And once she gets to the end of the yellow brick road, she'll hit the Emerald City, and the Wizard of Oz, the great wizard who lives at the Emerald City, will be sure to have a way to get her back home. And so after lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all the rest of her adventures and some new friends and some enemies, she finishes the trip and she gets to the city and she meets closed gates. She's gone through all that trouble and through all those turmoils and she ends up at a city wall with a closed gate. And it's too bad, too little, too late if somebody doesn't open the gates for her. And back to one of my favorite uh, film series of the two towers, Tolkien's. Stan, I can't get away from it. I keep coming back to this. Uh, if you've seen the second movie, The Two Towers of Tolkien's Stories, there's one section in there where little Frodo and Sam and Gollum is now with them, and they've come through the dead marshes, the perils of the dead marshes. And they've done so because they've got to get to the land of Mordor surrounded by these tall, dark mountains to get rid of the ring and destroy the evil lord. And of course what happens, they get through the end of the marshes and they're confronted by the tall, dark mountains and in the midst of this corner actually in the book where these mountain ranges meet, these incredibly huge steel gates. And in the movie version, they've, they've taken artistic license there so these creatures of some sort... Uh, need to work hard to get these gates open. But the thing is, they've come all this way, and here's their goal, but these huge dark steel doors bar the way, and they have no way in. And confronted with these mountain ranges and with these huge gates, they don't give up entirely, but they know they don't have what it takes to get through those doors. So they give up trying to enter through those gates. These massive gates end up keeping them from their goal, at least temporarily. Uh, Do you remember two weeks ago, we've been in a series, we'll actually finish it today, though it won't appear that way for a while. We're going to finish our series on Revelation 3 this morning. But a couple weeks ago, we looked at the letter Jesus wrote to the church at Philadelphia. And one of the things that he talked about in that message were doors. Talked about doors. We talked about doors for for some while. If you think about gates, the gates that Dorothy runs into or the little hobbits run into, gates are just another kind of door. They're a door in a city wall or they're a door in a fence, but it's just a door. If you know anything about ancient history, you remember in long time ago, biblical days and before and after, any city of any size or any city of any importance always had a defensive wall erected around it. And of course, within those walls, they had to have gates. They had to have walls because they were protecting themselves from foreign armies, and of course they had to have gates to get in and out, normal commerce of the day. So they had to be defended, but they had to have a means in and out. If you were going to attack a city, you had to either destroy its walls or you had to destroy its gates. Do one or the other to get in. And of course, if you could, the destruction of those gates would indicate that you had the power that it took to destroy the power of the gates and to take the city. 
Uh, one of the most fascinating cities, certainly in all of world history, is ancient city of Babylon, which uh, Saddam Hussein uh, had actually begun rebuilding. This city was unique in world history because of its defensive fortifications. Uh, you can go online, you can read any good history book, it'll tell you the walls of Babylon were famous, still famous to this day. It actually wasn't one wall, it was a series of walls. They were so wide and they were so tall and their gates so strong that foreign armies uh, would give no consideration to taking the city based on breaching the wall or crashing the gates. It said they were so wide on top that several teams of chariots could ride around the city, uh, you know, side by side. Very wide, yeah, incredibly wide. Uh, In fact, if you remember back in the book of Daniel, when the Medo-Persian army is outside the city of Babylon, they're throwing a party inside. This was the night that the hand comes out and writes on the wall. See, they're partying because they know our walls are so big and so bad and our gates are so strong, no one could get in. And that was true. No one could get past the walls or the gates. They did get in. The Medes and the Persians did conquer that night, but it was through stealth and craft. It wasn't because they had the power to actually breach the wall or the gate. They couldn't. This is also why it's interesting. You remember when Israel comes out of the desert and they hit that first big city? Jericho. You know, God wanted to put on a display with those walls for a reason. So when Israel is told to march around the city seven times and then seven times on the last day and they give the shout and they blow the trumpets, the walls and the gates all fall down. God was making a point with an exclamation point. He was saying that the God of Israel could destroy every city and every gate in the path of his chosen people. And word got out in short order. Because that rubble heap that were the gates of the city and those rubble stones that were the wall, that was evidence that God says, I have power to destroy anything. I'm bringing my people in and no power and no wall and no gate can keep me out. And so the rubble heap that was the city of Jericho was a testimony to everyone. They understood that Israel's God was claiming the power over everything in his path. And the destroyed gates and the destroyed walls were evidence of that. So on one hand, city gates were a real barrier that let people out, let people in or kept them out. They were also symbolic. You know, the trade of a city took place at the city gates. Again, if you could destroy the city gates, you could destroy the city. So they were both real and symbolic barriers. There's another kind of a gate or a door. People don't think of it in that sense, but veils are also a kind of a gate or a door in that they serve exactly the same purpose. And think back, way back to Israel in the wilderness. If you lived in a tent, you didn't carry around wooden doors or steel gates. You lived in tents, and so the dividers in those tents were veils. They were made of skin or they were made of cloth, but that was your divider. That was your doorway. That was your gate into a tent, into a dwelling, or from one confined space, one room to another. It was a veil. That was the door they used. It served exactly the same purpose as a wooden door or a steel gate. It didn't have the inherent strength, but it was a divider, and it either kept you out or it let you in. Think about God's dwelling with Israel in the wilderness. You remember he tells Moses, make a tent. It's called the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting, take your pick. But it was just a tent. And it's made of skins, primarily, with some cloth. 
and it's got veils, right? In fact, if you uh, you need to see this graphically if to to have a good concept, but basically there was a fence of material that went up around this whole compound where the tent was. That was a veil, and it kept people out. And then within that, there was the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting had two separate areas. There was the holy place, and that's where the menorah was, the light stand, the table of showbread, and the incense altar were all in this first room of the two-room tent of meeting. So only the priests could come into the altar, the first veil, if you will, the first the fence around it. Only the priests, after they offered sacrifice, could go through that first veil into the first room. You and I couldn't go in, only the priests. And then there was a second veil, and that was into the inner room or the holy of holies or the most holy place. And that's where the ark was, the ark of the covenant, this gold-covered box with the angels on top, and it was above that area where God's glory and this visible kind of a glowing cloud appeared above these angels. And into that area, past that second veil, only the high priest could go only once a year and only after, again, these blood sacrifices had been offered. So it was veil upon veil upon veil and every veil is just like a door or it's just like a gate. It keeps most folks out. Keeps us out. Uh, God was signifying something there. In fact, he says later in Hebrews, as long as those veils were up, no matter how many offerings were made, the veils intact, in place, were a clear sign that sin wasn't taken care of yet. Hebrews 9 talks about this. So we've got doors, we've got gates, we've got veils. In Mark's Gospel, kind of making a big switch here, in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry... He, he goes down into the water, baptized by John, not because he's a sinner, but because he's identifying with God's program. This is the official commissioning, if you will, of his ministry. He goes down into the water in baptism. And when he comes out, Mark 1, verse 10 says, that the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove on Jesus and a voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the Greek term for opened here is schizo. If someone is schizophrenic, if someone is described as being schizoid, schizo means torn or split, ripped. Ripped apart. Something that should be whole is now divided. Now, for the Jews reading this story of Mark, they understood that heaven is a veil. Heaven itself is a veil. And heaven closes man off from God, the skies. Close man off from God's heaven. God is separated from man. There's this great veil in between us, the heavens themselves. So when Mark tells us in Mark 1 that the heavens are torn, the veil is torn, and God the Father sends God the Spirit to God the Son and says there's a man on earth for whom heaven is opened. The veil, which is the skies themselves, is torn, is split open, and God can look down and say, to this one, heaven is opened. There's a breach between the the division that divides heaven from earth, and it's this person, Jesus, who's just been baptized. So the Jews understand this is a veil, and it's being torn, and God the Father looks down on one person at one moment and says, in this one, 
I am well pleased. The veil is torn. Later on, much later, three and a half years later, as far as our story goes, in Mark 15, this word is only used two times in Mark's gospel. And this is the second time. In Mark 15, Jesus has been crucified. He's been six hours on the cross. And in Mark 15, 37, as he is dying, as he is ending his life, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's interesting, Mark's gospel wants us to know absolutely, uh, in fact, you can study this later, these two passages are meant to be bookends on Jesus' ministry, which I won't go into this morning. But it's the same thought. Mark's readers knew that he was saying the same thing happened here that happened at Jesus' baptism. A veil was torn. Now, there's two versions of what veil was torn here. Uh, Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness, this tent, it had two enclosures. It had a veil in front and then a, a second veil to the Holy of Holies. We don't think about this, but the temple in Jerusalem had exactly the same thing. There were two veils. There wasn't one. There were two. Josephus, who was a Jewish leader, actually during the Roman War, and then a Jewish historian, writes about this outer veil. This outer veil. He says it's at least 80 feet high, at least 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. So this veil is huge. It's so heavy that it takes an army of men to raise it into place. So this is the thought. If you came up to the Temple Mount when Jesus was there during this story and you looked up at the opening of the temple, you'd have seen the. this is a magnificent structure about 90 feet tall and it's got the two uh, pillars on each side. But where you would go, where that would open up into that holy place was this veil. So when you looked up to the temple, you saw a veil. And this was not only huge and massive, it was so big that for practical purposes, it was indestructible. It was certainly unterrible. It was huge and it was impressive physically, but beyond that, this veil, Josephus says, was dyed various shades of blue and purple. And on its surface were embroidered stars. So that when you looked up, you didn't just see a drape, you saw a veil that represented heaven, the skies. And it was a reminder again that when I look to where God dwells, there's a division between him and me. Physically, the heavens themselves, and then symbolically, this veil that separates his presence in the temple from me also symbolizes the division between heaven and earth. Because when I look at the veil, I see it looks just like the heavens. So when Mark tells us that this veil is torn from top to bottom, it's highly symbolic and it communicates a lot. Mark knows, the Jews know, and we're supposed to know that when this veil is torn, the fact that a physical veil is torn is only important because it symbolizes God saying, heaven is opened. This barrier, physically the skies themselves, symbolically this physical veil in front of you has been torn from top to bottom because sin has been atoned for. Remember, it's our sin that shuts us out from heaven. 
Sin has been atoned for. The veil has been torn. Heaven is open again. Heaven is open. So this is good. And I like this. Heaven is open. The veil is torn just as at Jesus' baptism. It's split apart here. The veil is split apart. And the, ve- and the temple is open and God is open to take on sinners like you and I. And this is a good thing. But there's still a problem. Where's Jesus? Sin's atoned for and this is good, but there's still another issue. Jesus is, of course, after this, buried. He is dead. He is dead dead. Listen to Mark 15, verse 46. And Joseph, this is Joseph of Arimathea, bought a linen cloth, took him down, the body of Jesus, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is final. This is the proverbial nail in the coffin. People talk about Jesus didn't really die. He really died. And when this says he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, we've got another gate and we've got another door and we've got another veil that's been closed over the person and the body of Jesus. You know, when you bury someone and you cover them up, you're shutting them off from the world you and I live in. They are shut off from the land of the living. And when this stone is rolled in front of this tomb, it is absolute proof positive this man is dead. And this stone is a door to death. And the door is closed. And he is out of the land of the living and he is in the place of death. No doubt about it. It's the nail in the coffin. This stone showed that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. So heaven's open and this is good, but Jesus is still dead. Mark 16. Very early on the first day of the week, they came, they as the women his friends in life, came to the tomb when the sun had risen to serve him in death by, by giving more spices to the wrap his body was in. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. These women know there's no way they're moving this stone. Their heart's in the right place. They're going to come and serve, but they've got no way to move this stone. But it's already moved. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. The resurrection had already occurred and the stone has been rolled away. Now, Jesus didn't need to move that stone to get out. You know, later on on this same day, his followers, the disciples, are hiding in a room. And John tells us in John 20, the doors are closed because they're afraid. The doors have no no obstruction sense whatsoever to Jesus. He just shows up. He didn't need to move the stone. Because in his resurrection, this gate of death is entirely 
destroyed and the stone is rolled away to show all who come that he's not here. He's not dead any longer. He was dead and the stone over the tomb was proof. But the stone rolled away is proof that he's risen. He's not there anymore. When God shows us the torn veil, he's telling us that sin is atoned for. When he shows us the open tomb, the gate to death rolled away, he's telling us that death is destroyed in Jesus' resurrection. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. This speaking of Jesus says, Through death, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. At the resurrection, King Jesus stands on the gates of death and hell itself, having vanquished sin, death, Satan, and all his hosts. He is the conqueror. So think about doors and gates and veils for just a second. The veil kept us out of the temple, away from God's presence. The gates of heaven were closed to us. The gates of hell ruled over us. And the door of life had not yet been opened. Now in Jesus' death and resurrection, the veil is torn physically at the temple and spiritually to heaven and God can receive us again. The stone door of the tomb is rolled away showing that the death could no longer keep Jesus or us in its grip, and the gates of hell were destroyed, Jesus leading captive those who were held captive, subject to Satan and sin and death. So on Easter Sunday, it's great to remember that Jesus, this doorkeeper, so to speak, of the church at Philadelphia, has torn the veil, rolled away the stone at the tomb, opened the gates of heaven, defeated the gates of hell and death, all for us. And you know, on Easter Sunday, this would be a pretty good message. This would be enough, wouldn't it? This is good news. But let's look at one last door. You can go to Revelation 3 if you want. Do you remember this nauseating church that we read about last time? Nauseating. Do you remember that they had sold their birthright cheap for a bowl of stew like Esau? and that they valued the trinkets of this world instead of the true treasures of heaven, so that they said to God, hey, we've got everything we need, and he says, no, no, you don't don't have anything that you need. And he said, man, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're just nauseatingly lukewarm. Remember this group? Well, Jesus, we didn't finish that passage last time. Jesus has one last thing to say to them, and it's about another door. Revelation 3, verses 20 through 22, Jesus says to this nauseating church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, remember the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1? John, the guy that wrote these words for us, John knew him on earth, but when he sees him in heaven, he can't stand up because the glory of his deity and his person is overwhelming. 
And it says physically he's, he's glowing. His hair and his beard are white. And his eyes look like flames of fire so that they consume anything he looks at. And he's, he's dressed in this shining white garment and he's clad with gold. And he's got his feet look like they're brass, which is the symbol of judgment, heated hot so that wherever he goes, he brings righteous judgment with him. This was the glorious vision John saw of King Jesus. And then this is the same king who stepped down from heaven to earth to become a man. And and then he stepped down even as man to be this humble servant. And and then he stepped down again to die on the cross for our sins like like a common thief. But then he conquers sin and death, right? In his death and resurrection, he tears the veil... He throws down the doors of death and of hell and of Satan. He destroys every barrier between you and I and God. This is Him. And now this one final door, He stands outside and He doesn't throw it down. And He doesn't put the key of David, which He has in, and and open it. This one that can open every door no one can shut or close every door so no one can open... He's at this one last door. And he's standing outside. And he's knocking. Does this strike you as a little odd? As a little ironic? This is like the story of Odysseus who goes and he fights all these battles, the Greek hero. And it's like he does all these things to finally get back home. And then when he gets home, the the gate's closed. And it's locked. And they know him inside, by the way. By the way, this is his church, by the way. These are people he's bought and paid for with his blood. Inside, having closed the door against him. He conquers sin and death. He throws the gates of death itself down to stand in front of a door before you and I and knock. I can't think of any portion of scripture that more clearly shows the condescension of God to lowly critters like you or I than this. Just his his coming to earth, this is a big deal. This would be enough, sort of, to show his greatness and his condescension. Or to die for our sins, this would be enough, right? Or to raise from the dead. Uh, But having done all that, he stands outside the doorway of the hearts of folks like you and I, and outside the churches of people who call his name and graciously, patiently, kindly, he knocks. And he says, if you open the door, we could meet. We could eat together. You can sit on my throne with me. Would you like to get together? That's the picture here. He's conquered everything. He's gone to war. He's conquered the enemy. He comes to his own home and we have closed and locked the door against him. Doesn't put him off. It would me. Doesn't put him off. He stands and he says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And all you have to do is open up. Open the door. And if you do, we'll dine. We'll sit down. We'll enjoy a meal together. And you can sit on my throne and you can share my glory. This sounds like a pretty good deal. 
I wonder as I thought about this and prayed about this passage, to what degree or in what ways do you and I at Lion and Lamb Church close the door against the Savior today? I'm not thinking of anything specific. I just ask myself, Lord, have we locked you out? Or as an individual, this is written to a church and it's primarily meant in that context, but as an individual, as a Christian before God, have I closed the door and locked him out? Or have I told him, you can come into certain rooms, but not others. I'm keeping these for myself. You can, I'll entertain you in the living room, but the kitchen's off. You, you don't come in there. I'll do as I please in there. Are we keeping these doors closed and locked? Um, on this Easter Sunday, you know, it's the day that we remember the resurrection, and this is a great thing. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're saved, this is a big deal. You know, the torn veil is worthless. The tomb being opened, it's meaningless. If you don't, in the end, open this door for you or for me. Salvation is as easy as, Jesus says in John 1, receiving him. As many as received him. That's just like opening the door. Knock, knock. I open the door. I don't do anything to get salvation. Salvation is a gift that Jesus purchased at his cost. He paid for sin. He defeated death. And he says to you and I, here's a gift. If you'll open the door, you can have it. Trust me. I've paid for it. It's taken care of. Trust me. Open the door. Receive it. If you're a Christian this morning, you know the Lord, but you've closed the doors to parts of your life. That's a good morning. Easter Sunday is a good morning to say, Lord, I hear you knocking and I'm opening the door. I'm giving you whatever areas of, those, uh, areas of my life those closed doors represent, whatever that might be. Almost all of us at some point in life, we have things that we're holding out on. We know God's dealing with us on something we don't want to turn loose, so we close the door and lock it. And Jesus is there to knock. We're going to uh, dine with the Lord here in just a minute. We'll have the Lord's Supper. Uh, before we do, I'm going to play a song. This is particularly meaningful to me. This song is uh, it's about a soldier who's willing to lay down his life for other soldiers. But it's a great, uh, it's a great, the theme says exactly what Jesus does for you and I. And as you listen to the words of this song, just spend some time with the Lord. If you're not sure you're saved, say, Jesus, I want to open the door this morning. I want you to save me. I want to know I'm going to heaven. If you're holding out, if, he's, if you're holding the lock on this side because you know him and, and he's uh, wanting something in your life, take these few minutes to give him those things. Uh, he is gracious and he is kind. You know, the truth is we keep the doors closed against him at our own loss and our own expense and you know if you're walking with the Lord and your relationship with him is great enjoy the few minutes enjoy the song think about what he's done for you 